0: Welcome, Investigator. Evil is on the rise. Crime is escalating. Our mission is to eliminate the crime by exposing evil, examine why it manifests, and highlight the brave souls that confront it every day. Join us as we work together to bring justice to every victim. Welcome to All Things Crime. Here's your host, Jared Bradley.
1: Hey, everybody. It's Jared. Welcome to another episode of All Things Crime. I appreciate you being here, and while we're here, please uh, hit subscribe and uh, smash that little bell so you get a notification every time a new episode comes out. I'm excited about our guest today, but before I get into that, I just wanted to let you know our sponsor for this episode is Triad Forensics. Triad Forensics and Doug Young, a good friend of mine, uh, they are all about training solutions, case review, and consultation, and basically just adding value to your forensics and how they can help you solve crime. So contact them at triadforensics.com. Okay, well, let's get into uh, our guest today. Doug Bremner is an MD out of Atlanta, Georgia. And if any of you have uh, recognized the last name Bremner, you would recognize that Anne was uh, a guest on the show earlier. So make sure to go back to some of those episodes. Uh, fantastic uh, lawyer out of Seattle. Well, you guys couldn't uh, pick further places apart, maybe Miami, to, uh, to get further. You just can't stand your sister. What's the deal, Doug?
0: Uh, I just ended up here for uh, work reasons. But uh, by the way, thanks for having me on the show, Jared.
1: Oh, of course. Yeah, I'd say it's an honor. And we're having a little technical difficulties, so Ann wasn't able to join us today. But she's also uh, neck deep into the appeals process with uh, the Susan Powell case. So uh, we will forgive her for that. I can't believe that she would skip uh, an all things crime uh, recording to do an appeals process, but I guess that's the life of a lawyer. But Doug, we we have you on and um, you guys have a book coming out and I've been thumbing through this. I'll tell you what, that book I think is going to be an absolute smash. And for anybody that is involved with true crime, but also uh, involved in understanding the effects of of social media in the news and kind of how it how it affects the the legal process. I, I think this is going to be a fascinating book for everybody. So Doug, um welcome. And uh you know what? Let's let's start out with a little bit of your background and how you and Ann decided to write this book.
0: Well I'm a um the Ann's my my sister of course and she's a lawyer and I'm I'm a I'm a physician. I'm trained in psychiatry and nuclear medicine, so probably the most relevant part about my background is psychiatry and then some of the research that I've done in post-traumatic stress disorder. And as you know, trauma and PTSD plays a role in many, many of these true crime cases, both in terms of the victims and also sometimes some of the perpetrators. So... That was my background. We, we do studies of the brain and, and how it operates in PTSD, but also doing studies of memory. So one of the areas I've studied is the effects of false memory and changes in memory and also its relevance to coerced confessions. So a lot of these, you know, about a quarter of cases of individuals that are eventually exonerated based on DNA evidence, there's a false confession involved. And that was the case in the Amanda Knox case and, and in the West Memphis three, two of the cases that we cover in the book. So that's another area where you know my background came to play. And also research on psychology of of how people make decisions and how people think through things. One of the one of the chapters is about the opening statement is the most important. And that's because of some of the research done by psychologists showing that people make up their mind right away. And it's very difficult to change their mind. So that's relevant both for juries, in spite of all the instruction that judges give to juries about how they have to wait until all the evidence has been presented, about 80% of them will have made up their mind you know, after the opening statement. And it's also relevant to the role of social media in true crime, high-profile true crime cases, because people tend to make snap decisions based on something they saw on the internet. And then once they've decided guilt or innocence, it's, it's very difficult to change their minds. Oh, absolutely. And another another thing is that I got very involved in the Amanda Knox case because my wife is Italian and I found it interesting. And I spent, I became sort of a true crime buff where I was sort of glued to some of the forums that were discussing the case and the details of the case. And, you know, I came up with some things maybe we could talk about later that were related to medical field. I did a little bit of a internet sleuthing on my own and figured out a couple of things. Related to the physical evidence and the medical testimony.
1: Yeah. So, and and Amanda Knox for all of you that uh, are are looking for this book when it does come out, uh, Amanda Knox is actually on the cover. So psychologically, is that one of the the primary cases that you guys discuss? And is is that why you chose uh, her picture for the cover?
0: Well, originally this book was about Amanda Knox, and it was um, written by my sister, and she had some help with some writers and i sort of came in after the fact and when i got involved you know so i've written a number of medical books including before you take that Pill," why the drug industry may be bad for your health so i spent a lot of time working on my writing over the years and you know so i knew the Medic knox case very well it was easy for me to help kind of work on that case but as time went by um this a couple of years to write. And all these other cases sort of unfolded in the meantime, the George Floyd case, Kyle Rittenhouse, Amon Arbery. And then the other aspect was that it it, the first draft of the book, it it had sort of a negative take on the Italian justice system, which is sort of the the usual response of people in the U.S., especially people from Seattle, that there was a messed up judicial system and this wouldn't happen in the U.S. But, you know, I talked to some of my wife's cousins who are lawyers in Italy and and got some perspective on how the system worked and did some research on it and compared it to the U.S. system. And then, you know, he pulled in a couple of cases where, you know, the, the Amanda Knox case was a case of a prosecutor who ran off the rails. That was Giuliano Minini, right? So that was clear that he had these crazy ideas about satanic cults and Halloween and, and he jumped to the conclusion that they were guilty right away. Which illustrates the point I made before that people make tend to make up their mind right away. And then he just stuck to it and, and he couldn't change his mind. And even Donald Trump said that, you know, that guy's crazy and, and he just wants to get a scalp and convict someone no matter what. But that happened in the U.S. too. So it happened in the West Memphis Three. Actually, the same thing where the prosecutor came up with the story about a satanic cult, which didn't exist. The media jumped on that story and then there was leaks, you know, to the press And then that media coverage tainted the jury and found them guilty when they were innocent. And then with the Duke lacrosse case, it was the same thing where there is a prosecutor who was going up for election in Durham County. He uh, had 16 uh, press conferences before he even bothered to talk to the primary supposed victim. And it turned out that it was completely fabricated story. There was no sexual assault. Uh, Just to remind you, that was where the Duke lacrosse players had uh, had a, party and then they they hired a, a stripper and um and then she later claimed that they had sexually assaulted her so some of those cases you know i kind of fleshed out in more detail and it really illustrated the theme about how the media interplays with um with the justices in that case lacrosse michael nafong was the prosecutor you know he clearly used the media to try and further his own personal lands and and you know justice was the was the victim there oh
1: absolutely yeah and we've actually had uh, a number of people on here that have talked about the West Memphis three case. And that's, I I think those, the similarities in there and and it's really interesting the way you're, you're weaving that together. And I I think that's one of the things that's going to be the most intriguing about the book is how there's kind of a central theme to me from what I've saw from a, you know, a cursory look at it, that the, you know, right along the lines of those people that have already made their minds up, you know that's not just the jury pool. that's going to be people in general and if they if they get some kind of a, a story from a supposed trusted source and eighty percent of their minds are made up or you know eighty percent of the people their minds are one hundred percent made up, then no matter what kind of evidence is is portrayed afterwards it's it's going to basically just uh, they're just not going to believe it and i I, I found it really interesting the episodes that we did on the west memphis 3 and you know the my tie to the west memphis 3 was they they wanted to use the mvac on some of the uh shoestrings that were found that, that had tied up the victims there and you know we we don't really have a dog in the fight we we just wanted to you know do an episode about it because it's a basically a cold case they really haven't found the the people 100% that killed those three boys And yet, uh, some of the comments that I get on those, on the YouTube videos, especially just unreal. They're like, I mean, there, there are some people that are so convinced that those three teenagers committed those, those murders that I don't think you could say anything to them to convince them
0: otherwise. Yeah. Well, what's the MVAC, by the way?
1: Oh, well, the MVAC is, uh, it's, uh, basically a, a medical grade carpet cleaner it sprays a solution down and it vacuums up the DNA out of evidence. So it's used on rough and porous or uh, degraded DNA. So just, just like you would use a carpet cleaner to get a, a stain out of your carpet where it sprays down and vacuums at the same time, uh, they use the MVAC to, on, on a lot of different evidence sources, like rocks and bricks that have been used in, in uh, heinous crimes. and. In in particular for the West Memphis three case, yeah, they, they wanted they want to use it on some of the evidence that they still have for that case. But another case, for example, is the Susan Powell case. They actually used the MVAC on the trunk of the car of uh Josh Powell's brother's car to try to get some of the DNA it possibly, you know, identify Susan uh Susan's DNA in that trunk to see if, if that was the vehicle that they had transported her somewhere. So you know, there, there's, um, it's one of those tools that is uh, forensically kind of behind the scenes, but it's a, it's a really powerful tool for DNA collection.
0: Yeah, it's interesting in terms of people making up their mind about guilt. I mean, that's not unusual. In fact, my experience, it almost, it always happens that there's a certain number of people that will never, you know, change their opinion. And, and I found that interesting. You know, as a kind of a psychiatrist and a researcher of human behavior. And my theory, my idea is that it's ingrained in how we think, you know, so people like to think that they're non-judgmental and they wait to see all the facts, but, you know, our brain is wired for survival. And I think one of the things that the brain does is it makes an instant judgment about whether you're a friend or a foe. And that's what goes into this judging about guilt and innocence in these high profile crime cases. And the first chapter of the book is um, kind of reads what the a judge would say in, the, in a court in the state of Washington, the instructions to the jury about how they're not supposed to be biased, how they're supposed to wait for all the evidence and how they're not supposed to look on the Internet or, you know, talk to anyone about the case or come up with an opinion that based on anything outside of what they hear in the court of law. And that's such a it's sort of strange when you read it. It's so explicit and so detailed. And it sort of goes against the way we just sort of think and do things in our daily lives.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's um, how many snap judgments uh, per day do we, we average? You know, it's got to be in the thousands where you're mm-hmm. just like, every, every time you walk through a room, you're going to be making a hundred different judgments on, you know, should I step here or should I move here? And most of them are just going to be subconscious level. Mm-hmm. But, you know, regardless, you're you're making so many decisions every day. I think it's just naturally... Ingrained in us, and I, you know, I of the public speaking type of uh, courses I've taken, they've basically said you've got thirty seconds to convince an audience that you actually know what you're talking about, and that you're going to talk about something that they're interested in. Otherwise, you've lost them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just interesting that uh, there's so many times that I've gone to conferences, or you know, you go to church or whatever, you know, it, you're, where you have one focal speaker. And they'll spend the first two or three minutes, you know, explaining why they're why they're there or why they shouldn't be there or why they didn't want to be there. And and next thing you know, everybody's asleep.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the one of the uh, psychology experiments that we talk about in the book is where they these researchers, I think it was at Stanford, did this experiment where they had a bunch of students take this do this test where they they read these suicide notes and they. They tried to determine whether the suicide note was real or fake. And then immediately after they judged whether it was real or fake, they were told correct, incorrect, and they were had made to do a scorecard where they kept track of how well they did. But the whole thing was rigged so that they were being told they made a mistake when in fact they they didn't, and they were randomized to either kind of the good group or the good group. And then at the end they added up their score and you know, they were told they were above average or below average but then after they told them that it was all rigged that it was fake that the score they were given had nothing to do with how well they really did they still continued to to think that they did worse than they actually did and then the final step was that they had outside observers watch them take this test and the outside observers also rated them as being poor being good based on this erroneous information but even when they were told that. This is actually an experiment to prove that people make these judgments and they can't change their mind. The students themselves kind of came back to judging that they did average, but the outside observers continued to think that the good people were were good and the bad people bad, even when they were told, you know, this is basically an experiment about fake memory and and erroneous judgments. (laughs) You know, so they'd be like, if I sat there and told you, like, you know, this guy's winning the cards, but he's cheating all the time. You would think that he's a good card player. Even when I told you that this guy is actually, we have proof that he cheats. And so that, that's what goes into, it's sort of an interesting commentary on human behavior in general, but you know, it is, it is relevant to how people make up their minds in in social media, you know, about these cases.
1: Oh, it's fascinating. Yeah. It's when you get into psychological Type of behavior and actually evaluating things, even that is. I, I think people are making judgments about, you know, is this really true or not? Even though it's it's an observation, it's like you know this is uh, this is what we're physically seeing, and yet a lot of times people won't even believe that. I, right. I, I don't know. It's, there's so many different aspects to it that it's just yeah, that, fascinating stuff. And it, and talking about forensic psychology uh, You know, and criminal behavior and those kind of things. Uh, yeah, I've had a number of people on the show that have talked about that, and man, you start getting into why certain people do things what they do, and then how a jury pool can evaluate you know not only their actions but the people in general, and you know you start getting into all these different psychological things about the, the justice system and how people are evaluated the, the second they they are seen basically. You know, walk into a courtroom and a whole bunch of people are like, oh yeah, they're guilty.
0: Right. Yeah, I've been actually been involved in four or five, you know, death row cases and went to the jails in both in Georgia and in Florida and interviewed people that were on death row. One for killing his entire family and then another one for, you know, accused of killing another woman. It was interesting, you know, the the background stories are fascinating. I would spend six hours interviewing them because I had unlimited time and it would usually you know going down to Jackson in, in Georgia it's a two hour drive so that means that my day is is uh kind of gone at that point anyway. And then I went to another correctional facility um, outside of Jacksonville in North Florida. And um you know a lot of times, you know, my specialty is trauma and PTSD. So a lot of times, you know, childhood trauma and history prior traumas is part of the picture. And so maybe they're asking me to evaluate someone based on, you know, mitigating circumstances for the death penalty. Maybe they want to know if this person has frontal lobe, you know, damage from, you know, being hit in the head when, as a child or, you know, in another case, it was whether, you know, a war related, uh, go syndrome or other situation could have, you know, caused the behavior. But the interesting thing I found is that in both cases where I met someone in person, you know, they told me that they were innocent, <laughs> and so you walk out of there thinking, you know, after talking to them for four hours, I, I walked out of there having no idea, you know, what, <laughs> which I thought was pretty interesting, you know, yeah. like, you know, what what had actually happened. But well,
1: um, when when you say they were, um, they told you they were innocent. I I don't doubt in their minds they believe that. Yeah. Based on on the circumstances of the case, were they actually innocent?
0: No, I mean, I, exactly. You know, that's an interesting thing is like in their mind, do they feel that they were innocent or not? Or were they making something up? Was it something where in one case, there's a question of whether someone had something occur, which we call dissociation, which would be like a sort of a trauma related symptom. And you can get gaps in memory, you know? So sometimes you'll see Combat veterans that'll kind of go into a, a dissociated state and they may have like lose an hour, you know, of time. So that was one possibility that was raised in case of the war veteran is whether he was in a dissociated state and he really didn't remember, you know, what happened, which no, wouldn't agree. necessarily, you know, get you exonerated. You know, you can't, there's really no mental health defense that really works anymore in these cases. Even someone completely psychotic who, like that guy that, that shot up the theater, the movie theater in Colorado, he thought he was the, the, he was psychotic. He thought he was the joker and even that was not going to necessarily help him. So and some people might say, well, they're just used that as an excuse to, you know, for the crimes they commit. But in point of fact, it doesn't, you know, it's probably not going to help them. It, you know, at best it might mitigate, be a mitigating factor. Um, I mean a capital case, and in these cases, when someone's on death row and they're threatened with execution, that's you know, the job of the lawyer to find whatever they can to to try and prevent you know, prevent that from happening. And that's their job,
1: right? Well, it's interesting when you bring up Colorado. You know, you think about the uh, the Columbine shootings, and I mean, I I don't know this for certain, but my understanding is those two two young men were. basically playing so many video games that they couldn't differentiate between reality and and the video game and so they were just kind of playing out what they were in that I don't know, is it called an action or whatever that video game is where you're visibly looking down the barrel of of shotguns and things and shooting people and uh, that's basically what they played out at the school.
0: Yeah, although one thing is that you know, I think that part of the kind of the national dialogue about You know, these mass shootings and gun violence is that, well, we need to improve mental health. Not all of these people that are involved in these mass shootings are necessarily have it. I mean, certainly the vast majority of them don't have a psychotic disorder where they're unable to differentiate right from wrong. And most of them don't even have a diagnosis of, of PTSD or other major psychiatric disorder. It's more, you know, it's probably, you know, if you were to point at what factors are most relevant, it would be kind of male, gender, young age, you know, the age range you know, access to firearms, et cetera. But, uh, you know, these, not everything can be prevented by counseling.
1: Oh, right. Well, yeah, yeah. It's uh, one of the, one of the sayings that I hear a lot is, you know, like law enforcement and society as a whole has to get it right all the time. And, you know, guys like that, they just, it's just a one-off. And so your ability to actually stop them without basically Upending all of society is is close to impossible. So,
0: well, although I I have heard of you know some kind of newer approaches where they're not focused on necessarily you know mental health treatment, but more in terms of coming up with algorithms that might identify people that are high risk, and that seems promising to me because they there are some people now doing research on what are some of the predictive factors, and they found a few things like they do find that most of these people have done something online, made some threatening statements on Facebook or to someone that they know that if those could be identified early enough, there might be an intervention and it may be enough just to kind of stop someone, you know, for momentarily to prevent some catastrophic event from occurring. And then they kind of move on with their life. You know, 20 year olds, things can change that that there doesn't necessarily have to be a chronic threat. You know, so some of those approaches I think are, are, are promising and doing research to find out what, what the risk factors are, if you will, is is worthwhile. I don't think I've seen a lot done with that in the past. Yeah.
1: Well, didn't the, um, the Parkland shooter, didn't he have a lot of um, like even a list of people that he was looking for and he had posted that online?
0: Yeah. I think that from what I've seen, that happens more often than not that there's some, there, there's something that he's either said to a friend or a family member you know, they may have like one friend that they may confide and they make threatening comments, or you know, post a video or something on on Facebook. And so, I think maybe the focus is turning more towards identifying these the risky signs and intervening. You know, at a sort of a counseling level, but trying to intervene. You know, before something bad happens.
1: Yeah. Well, it's you know the whole the whole adage of uh, you know see something say something i mean that's that's nice but it's also really difficult because you know number one um if you say something like that and then you're wrong you know you can get yourself in all sorts of hot water even if it's just being condemned widespread by social media but the second thing is you know you're going to lose friendships you're going to lose possibly employment you know there's all sorts of of things that are uh, kind of inhibiting us from from saying something even if the red flag is going up but so what what would your advice be to people in general if they do see something like that
0: well i mean i think we have to weigh one thing you know against another i mean the uh you know a lot of these people are you know kind of if you were to have a profile it might be a 20 year old male who's unemployed and you know probably the risk of retaliation from you know personal retaliation is probably not as high as if it was you know, your employer or something like that, of course. Yeah. But I mean, you know, it is, diff- it is a sort of difficult area, but I think thinking about this, this sort of thing and what could be done to prevent, you know, these events um, is worthwhile. I think pr- probably there have been events that have been prevented, you know, that we just don't hear as much about.
1: Yeah. Well, hindsight's always twenty twenty, And I love, um, you know, the armchair quarterbacks that always come out after a uh, big events and they're like, yeah, well, you know, this person should have known and, you know, these, uh, you know, these officers down in Moab, Utah should have had more psychological training and social endangered women training and, and could have stopped, uh, you know, that, that girl from uh, Florida from, from being murdered out there. And yeah, yeah, I mean, it's hindsight and it's, it's great if it's a learning experience, but I think far too many people, and, and this kind of gets to your book. I think far too many people use hindsight because they have a hundred percent understanding of the event and they use that to bludgeon other people. And I don't know if they think it makes them look superior, but to me, it's just like, you know what you, what, what decision would you have made before you, ha- you knew all the facts before you understood what was actually going to happen. And I, and you know, even the, the Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, case, which is one of the ones I know you write about. I think that's a fascinating uh, story right there because everybody, all the way up from CNN to everybody else can, was condemning this kid. And uh, as it turned out, uh, the, the end result was a lot different. Thanks for joining us. Your attention today brings us one step closer to exposing and eliminating the evil that brings crime to our communities. Hit subscribe, and share this episode. Together, we will bring justice to every victim.